it's kind of like an iceberg. You only see the the tip, um, and that tip is the is the success. And underneath that is a is a whole load of failure. Which is to say, I spent so much time <laughs> writing grant applications and trying to get investors that just went absolutely nowhere. I think, you know, probably something like out of the last kind of four years that I've been working on this, at least a year and a half, maybe even two years, maybe let's call it a year and a half, has been failed attempts of trying to get funding. Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza, your host of Reinvision Business and co-founder of UpEffects. If you're new to our work, over the last five years, we've loved amplifying and supporting business models that prioritize equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. We're now advancing this work through our Reinvision Business podcast. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll spotlight models that are re-envisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. In this episode, I sit down with Samson Samlan Bowling, an engineer, educator, and founding director of Open Energy Labs. His work focuses on how education can be used to solve the problem of poor access to electricity in countries within Africa. Samson has worked in various contexts from refugee camps to schools in the UK, with a focus on providing young people with skills in engineering so that they can solve the problems that they see around them. This was an interesting conversation that covered the current energy infrastructure of Africa, the use of education to improve access to electricity, funding emerging market solutions, and how to raise over £300,000 for a social enterprise. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Samson. Hello, Samson. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to using this as an opportunity to hear more about Open Energy Labs and very, very grateful that you've taken time out to be present for today's episode. So Samson, before we dive into learning more about the work that you do, I'd love to just take a step back and understand more about how did you find yourself working within this space and serving the people of Africa through the means of electricity? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Really, really um, happy to be here and, uh, and have this conversation. And, um, yeah, thank you very much for, for having me on the, on the platform. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I was looking at various ways during my during my studies um to try and uh, have an impact in the world um you know i think fundamentally um I, i'm aware that that you know i've i've come from a very privileged background having grown up in the uk in a relatively comfortable uh, uh family situation um and i've kind of always felt that there was some way in which i should be using that privilege to to or leveraging that privilege to try and help people who who haven't had access to that um and so um yeah i studied um, mechanical i was actually studying automotive engineering at the time and i switched over to mechanical engineering and so um i was always trying to find ways in which you know i could kind of uh, use engineering um to to improve improve the lives of of people um and that's kind of on the one side on the other side um i uh you know my, my heritage is i've got various heritage but one of them is um uh an, an afro-caribbean heritage uh, my grandfather is from from guyana and so i've always kind of had this strange uh, you know lost in the mists of time connection to 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 africa to the continent um and i you know, felt that there was uh, some way in which I could kind of bring these two together as a kind of way of helping people, but also to kind of reconnect, I suppose, um, with with Africa. Um, and so those two things kind of were, were the kind of starting point. And then, you know, fundamentally, I think that um, when it comes to 
you know, what we as humans needs. I think that there are kind of, you know, basic material needs that we have. You know, we need to eat, we need to drink, we need to have shelter. We can't be too hot, we can't be too cold. And so um, for me, it was really important to try and find ways in which we can address those fundamental needs, but also to help people who who don't have those fundamental needs uh, satisfied. Um, and so energy um, was uh, one of the kind of main things that allows people to satisfy those needs. You know, with with energy, you can you can really, you know, or, or rather, energy is a is a fundamental thing that you need in order to um, to to allow that to happen. So, um, yeah, bringing all of those things together um, during my kind of university days is kind of what set me on this path to working um, on the continent um, to improve access to electricity. And I understand that a lot of your work is in response to Africa being held back due to a lack of local technical capacity to build and maintain renewable energy systems. Can you help us understand what the current systems look like and what are the implications of this for local communities, but also for the countries at large? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really interesting question and it has multiple facets to it. Um, so I think starting from the top level, so um, looking at many countries in 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 Africa, um, particularly where we're working in in Zambia, um, there is um, you know there are these kind of massive urban centres where you really have quite high population density, but when you get out into the rural areas, um, the, the population density drops significantly. Um, you know, countries, you know, like Namibia, which is the second um, uh, least densely populated country in the world. Um, I'll leave the, the listeners to try and guess which which one the most the least uh, densely populated one is. Um, but uh, so when you get out to these rural areas, um, it's actually really difficult to do grid um, expansion because the distances are so big. The terrain um, can sometimes be be quite tricky particularly in kind of more mountainous um, countries like Kenya Um, and so this grid expansion is actually really difficult to do Um, and but however you know up until you know 10-15 years ago grid expansion was the kind of main paradigm um, for for improving access to electricity Uh, and now what we're seeing is that there is a massive growth in decentralized uh, particularly with with solar energy um and um so you know at a fundamental level there is always a kind of uh, a capacity gap um into you know even with the grid um connections um but what has happened is that a lot of uh training and capacity building went into these grid connections so a lot of the engineers that you that we've kind of come across on the continent are actually these grid level uh, and, and kind of electrical engineers. And as we move now towards the decentralized energy system, um, the kind of technical capacity gap is even greater um, because now, you know, new skills like electronics, embedded software are becoming more and more important um, within the energy space. And so that, that skills gap is kind of widened even further. Uh, and that is kind of exacerbated um, by the fact that many of the companies who are coming in and operating in this space um, are, you know, headquartered in the UK, in, you know, Europe, in the US. And so a lot of the kind of technical innovation is actually happening outside of the countries. You know, there are countries, you know, there are companies who, who are doing that, but but by and large, that's where the innovation is happening. And so... Um, there's not only a kind of skills gap um, at the kind of you know maintenance level, but at that innovation point, and that's really where the true power of technology is is vested, really. Um, and that doesn't sit within within those countries. Um, and so, more often than not, um, you know, local players um, are, find it very very difficult to compete because they don't have that that kind of capacity for innovation. And the infrastructure isn't there as well, of course. Um, but, you know, that, that capacity for innovation and the power that comes with that is, is kind of um, 
you know, sits outside of uh, those countries. And I understand that Open Energy Labs is actually trying to serve this need and address that um, that that capacity gap to ensure that the infrastructure does exist on a local level. Can you help us understand more about what you guys are doing and how exactly you're serving this need on a local level? So what we found, um, one of the kind of big uh, barriers um, to developing this this kind of innovative capacity was the um, an access uh, or, or a, a lack of access to um, uh, effective materials and resources to teach. Now, one of the complaints that we uh, kind of constantly hear from the students they interact with is that within the kind of traditional education systems, because people don't have access to resources and, you know, <laughs> Uh, it's a classic chicken and egg that you basically can't actually learn about electricity without actually having access to electricity. And so what what happens is that all of the uh, teaching that happens is on a purely theoretical basis. And so um, what we do is we actually provide a a much more practical uh, and hands-on, while still being firmly rooted in theory, um, uh, learning experience. And um, we use a what's essentially a, a project-based learning approach. Um, we, we've based some of our ideas on the, the um, educator and learning theorist Victor, uh, sorry, um, Seymour Papert, um, and we have an approach of learning by making. Um, and so we teach students uh, electronics, uh, embedded software programming, uh, and energy system design by actually building an energy system. Um, and so what that looks like is we have a, a kit um, uh, which uh, students assemble. And when they uh, assemble, they learn as they assemble. Uh, and the kit um, provides them with a fully functioning um, charge controller, which can provide power for mobile phone charging and lighting. Um, alongside this, we have a, an app that allows students to uh, consume content, educational content, um, and within the app, we also have a, a, essentially an embedded programming um, environment that allows students to write simple programs that they can upload wirelessly um, to a microcontroller on their, uh, in their charge controller, and that then allows them to um, measure voltage, to control the outputs, um, and also provides them with a platform for developing new ideas around how to uh, you know, use, consume and monitor um, energy. That sounds absolutely incredible. And I understand that you're doing some work to make, to embed some of this work into the school curriculum. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, you know, I think there are, there's a lot of um, uh, scale that you can get from working together with governments. And, you know, people always um, complain, I mean, both, internally and externally complain about working together with with governments in, on the continent um, but what we've found is that there is a real desire um, from particularly the Zambian government whom we've been working with um, to upskill the population and there is a real openness to um, having the sorts of you know learning content and curricula that we're putting together as part of the the national curriculum. Um, And so we essentially provide the curriculum um, to those uh, two governments on the continent, um, here initially in Zambia, but we're looking to expand. And then we provide a a kind of the best way in order to teach that curriculum um, using our our learning materials. So, you know, I think working together with governments and... and, um, and having that approach just means that we can scale much more quickly, but also means that we can respond to the needs of the population um, and, you know, both from a bottom-up and a top-down um, approach. Given what you've just shared, I know that you've identified that there is a problem in terms of lack of access to resources and technical capacity. 
Can you help us understand what is the wider social impact of the work that you're doing and the work that you've just described in terms of improving access to electricity and energy for off-grid communities? Because I understand that the benefits are really, really transformational on an individual household level. But it would be great if you could just help us understand what those benefits look like on a day-to-day basis. So... Yeah, I mean, access to to electricity has a, a you know a, a vast array of different things that that uh, or a vast array of positive outcomes. Um, so, I mean, first and foremost, lighting um, is a is a really really changes your your life. Being able to do stuff after dark, um, you know, it's it's something that uh, you know, having grown up in in a in the global north, um, something that that you know. I've definitely taken for granted, but when you're in one of those villages where you you can't do anything after dark, really, you know, you can kind of sit around, but um, but really, people, you know, there, there's you know, there's little that you can do without light when it's dark, um, and so by providing light, um, you improve um, uh, educational outcomes so it's one of the biggest single biggest things that you can do to improve educational outcomes is allow students to do their homework after dark um it uh means that businesses can continue to run um after dark um uh you know particularly in in you know rural areas where a lot of the kind of market activity happens at night because people are you know in the fields during the day um so you know, I think there's there's a whole load of kind of business aspects. Um, of course, when you don't have access to electric light, other forms of light replace it. So in particular, kerosene is often used, um, and that's you know a massive uh, you know pollutant um, with you know air pollution, um, you know due to a variety of sources, but also due to kerosene lamps um, being the biggest one of the biggest killers. Um, of children under the age of five worldwide, um, you know, it, it, that uh, being able to replace that um, is really important. Obviously, it produces better light when you've got uh, electric light. Um, so yeah, lighting is massive. Um, and the second thing um, that we focus on um, is uh, mobile phones and providing access to to electricity to charge mobile phones. Uh, I mean, mobile phones are. I think we've all we've all um experienced how how useful they can be but you know in um in a context where obviously there are no laptops or computers they are you know that's where mobile phones and particularly smartphones as they increase adoption um are, are really important it's what allows people to stay in touch with each other uh, on a personal level um people can look up information about What's the price of potatoes today? Is it worth me making the price, the the journey into town in order to actually sell these potatoes? Or am I going to make a loss if just by paying for the transport? Um, There are a whole load of um, fantastic programs around reproductive health uh, and getting information out to to young women and girls. Um, uh, Sorry, of course, lighting for health is a massive thing. I mean, you know... uh, the the some of the stories around you know women giving birth um using nothing but torchlight um you know the refrigeration of medicines um is obviously massive massively important as well um but yeah coming back to mobile phones um you know in the internet and access to information farming techniques um you know all of the fantastic things that you can do with the mobile phone are, are kind of um you know you're able to do that with with uh with electricity and and those two things are really what we focus on because you really don't need much power uh to do that um it the technology required to do that is is not particularly complex um and is easily explainable so that's kind of where we're focusing our energies on on those two and, and they really do have a, a massively transformative effect on I imagine a lot of the impact that you're having at the moment through the work that you're doing will also feed into the future of these families. 
And not only um, on that scale, you you may also see some wider economic impact in in terms of you, the use of mobile phones, resulting in uh, job opportunities, but also a means of creating businesses, um, which of course feeds into economic growth. Is there any data available around that, how um, powering and e- equipping local communities with the means to access electricity and, and it, the, get access to basic energy needs results in um, business opportunities for local communities? Yeah, there is there is a lot of data out around that and, and it's, it's fairly well established. I think um, there's a really good uh, organization called Gogla or Gogla who have a whole load of information around that. Um, the uh, International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA, um, also have some really interesting um, uh, uh, data around that. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, access to, to electricity, I think definitely it, it has a massive effect. And as I mentioned, you know, people being able to start, you know, or businesses being able to start, you know, continue after dark uh, is, is one thing. I think, um, you know, uh, being able to, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, get get access to to market information uh, and make decisions about about that is is you know is really important. Um, I think, you know, what where it is that we're kind of focusing in terms of you know continuing to to build opportunities is is uh, work and entrepreneurship opportunities within the energy industry itself. You know, I think. In Zambia um, alone, um, you know, there are kind of two two million households who don't have access to electricity. Um, in sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, um, you know, it's just under 600 million people who don't have access to electricity. That is a massive business opportunity into itself. And at the moment, that business opportunity is only available to companies who are well-financed, yes, but also have the technical capacity. And so what we're trying to do is, you know, kickstart entrepreneurship, not just by virtue of having access to electricity, but by actually being those who provide access to electricity to their communities. Um, so, yeah, that's that's one of the kind of areas that, that we've really been focusing on. Um, and we've kind of seen some really interesting initial results. Um, you know, we've, we've been supporting businesses, uh, one uh, one woman who um, has been working to develop uh, wind turbines using the gusts as cars drive by, the wind that kind of comes from, from cars driving by to, to, to drive wind turbines and use that to charge mobile phones at bus stops. Um, we uh, have had students who are using their skills to uh, in rural areas um, to... Uh, detect and scare off um, hippos and elephants who come and destroy crops. Um, so you know, there's, there's when you have access to electricity and also have access to skill the skills to manipulate electricity. There's there's a whole new range of you know fantastic businesses that that you can kind of support um, and and kind of can flourish um, off the back of that. I absolutely love that. That sounds really remarkable, and I think the. The impact that this could have for the millions of people that don't have access to electricity is hugely profound. And it's a resource that so many of us take uh, for granted. And so just having a clear explanation of what these um, what what access to a very basic resource can do for those communities is actually very important to highlight but also to serve as a business and through the work that social enterprises are doing like open energy lab so firstly just really uh, a lot of gratitude for the work that you're doing within this space um, and also uh, really, really excited for what lies ahead. I understand that you've obviously to to fund the operations of Open Energy Labs. It's it is a huge effort, and you've been very successful in tapping into a number of funding sources. Um, from what I understand, you've raised over three hundred thousand pounds for the company, which is really, really incredible. And incredibly rare as well as a success story, given that businesses that are serving emerging markets are massively underfunded and under-resourced. It's not a sector that receives the attention that it deserves. 
I'm interested to hear more about how did you convince so many reputable funding bodies, as well as over 300 CrowdCube investors, to appreciate the viability of this business model and to understand the need for servicing this market? What are some strategies and lessons that worked well for you in terms of raising this capital? You know, you only, it's kind of like an iceberg. You only see the the tip um and that tip is the is the success and underneath that is a is a whole load of failure um yeah. which is to say um you know uh, i i spent so much time <laughs> writing grant applications and trying to get investors mm-hmm. that just went absolutely nowhere i think you know probably something like out of the last kind of four years that I've been working on this at least a year and a half maybe even two years maybe let's call it a year and a half has been failed attempts of trying to get funding <laughs> you know so it's Gosh. Uh, it's basic it's basically just the first thing is that it's just and I don't mean to put people off but the first thing is that it is pretty soul destroying graft well it's important um, to be transparent and for others to hear this because yeah. like I said it is a massively underfunded market yeah. and yeah. it'll be interesting to unpack why that is you know there yeah. a lot of yeah. a lot of the solutions to many of our problems um, need to be, you know, redirected to economies that are desperate for these basic necessities and basic resources. And that's really where we should be directing our money to. But, you know, we see that a lot of capital sits in the US, a lot of capital sits in Europe. That's where most of the investments are happening. So you've navigated something incredibly challenging <laughs> and you're doing very well at it. And it'll be great for our listeners to understand how sure. you've managed to um, navigate this space. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think, um, so uh, first of all, again, I'm going to caveat all of this with, uh, you know, keep in mind that there is a, a, a huge uh, helping of survivor bias here. Um, so uh, just, just because... You know, these are the things that I've done doesn't necessarily mean that they work. But um, having having caveated it with that. um, So maybe it might be worth just kind of giving a little bit of background about our fundraising story. So, um, yes, please. after I I quit my job, um, I basically spent um, probably about a year. uh, So I was actually a mechanical engineer uh, by background. So I actually spent about nine months to a year. probably about six months teaching myself the electronics I needed to know in order to build our first prototype. Um, and hardware is quite nice in that front on that, on that front, because you can actually build a prototype and go out and, you know, put it in front of people and you can get it to do something pretty whizzy and people go, Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and so um, I probably spent about six months kind of de- developing this prototype and then, basically spent six months writing funding applications and I mean you're going to hear this one several times in this story is I was pretty close to giving up um or at least I'd like to tell myself I was close to giving up my partner would probably say yeah I know you would have probably kept that until it came but we we basically um managed to get funding from uh an organization called Beth McQueen Ventures um and I think oh i love them yeah they're they're really really fantastic um and i think um one of the things that we were able to do uh in that application was just having written so many of them uh and um i think that there is a kind of a way and and a language that you can use and i kind of fully immersed myself into the world and language of startups um, and I think that that was a really important part of being able to get that funding was to kind of speak the language um, of, of startups, particularly if you're in this kind of, you know, if you're in the startup field. Um, so that that was really that was really important um, kind of first step. Um, and then after that, um, 
you know, we, we got some initial funding, we developed our prototype, we did a really big pivot, um, which was, you know, from, you know, teaching people how to build wind turbines to teaching people how to build, uh, you know, the electronics side of things. Um, and uh, we then spent a long time kind of, uh, yeah, trying to get more funding, developing prototypes. Uh, and that was really, really hard. We made some sales, which was really great, um, but they weren't enough to kind of, um, uh, you know, we, we weren't able to scale quick enough um, for us to be able to, to um, you know, uh, you know, get the revenue in that we needed in order to, to continue. And so um, we looked for funding. That basically, I probably spent about about a year looking for funding, writing funding applications, living on less than minimum wage, <laughs> um, you know, really just scraping by. Um, and eventually decided to go down the crowdfunding route um and you know you know the one of the kind of i suppose dirty secrets of crowdfunding is that um you uh usually need to have a pretty significant network of people who can provide crowdfunding uh who can provide you with that with that with that money and so i think you know again there there have definitely been points at which I've been able to leverage um, my my privilege, and I think the crowdfunding was, to be perfectly honest, one of those, where I was able to tap into a network of people who did have expendable income, um, who uh, you know were able to buy into the vision without really needing to worry about any kind of returns or anything like that. Um, so I do think that it's important to kind of highlight that, um, even though it's a little bit uncomfortable, um, to be honest. Um, and so the, the crowdfunding, I'm I'm with you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There are many problems that exist within the crowdfunding space and the, the lack of transparency and visibility into the process and how many platforms are built to serve those that have access to networks, have access to capital and have access to resources to navigate this space is definitely a dirty secret that exists within the industry. And that definitely needs to change. So I'm, I'm glad that you're raising that. <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I think that, that, that was kind of what we did there. So that was basically, you know, we did an entire crowdfunding raise that was just friends and family um and so um now this is where i think the key lesson that i've learned about about uh funding is that you basically once you have funding you need to leverage that funding as much as you can um and what i mean by that is so we took some of the money that we raised to our crowdfunding and we spent it on grant writers. Um, so we spent about £3,000 on a grant writer. Uh, and by working together with that grant writer, we were able to get funding from Innovate UK um, through the Global Challenges Research Fund. Um, now, obviously, just having a grant writer on board doesn't guarantee success. Uh, and it's a, it was a risky investment. But we basically took that that money that we had raised. We uh, we opened uh, our kind of first space in Zambia. We ran a whole load of pilots. Um, we gathered data, and we were able to use that to write this this uh, this grant funding application with the support of these grant writers. And that was a, a significant amount of money that we were able to raise through that. So I think once you have a little bit of money in your in your kind of in your business using that money particularly if you're in the impact space to raise uh, further funding and actually spending money to raise that funding i think was really an important part of of what we did it also admittedly again this is where luck comes into it we had a pot of funding from the uk government that was just like you couldn't have wished for a better fit in terms of the funding. So there just so happened to be this fantastic bit of funding 
that we that we that we were just perfect for and it was just such an obvious fit and we sat you know in a particularly niche part of that funding that they didn't really have many projects for so we were kind of you know a niche within a niche that they were really looking to fund so that is kind of a really big slice of luck that we got um out of that um and so uh that was that and then uh, once we had that funding again that then allowed us to um you know we then had uh that funding we had to then raise additional capital to get matched funding and so again we took that funding that we that we had got from the government and then leveraged it again to raise the our crowd our second crowd fund which was a um which was an equity crowd fund um and you know again we were kind of able to to tell a really compelling story around what we were going to do um off the back of this kind of innovate uk funding so i think when it comes to funding it's really about once you've got that first bit to always be thinking about okay how can i leverage this to get that next bit of funding and also how can i leverage this to actually build the business um and and generate revenue um so yeah, that's that's kind of how we've managed to manage to do that with that mindset. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very much like a chicken and egg situation to access the level of funding that you need to get the business off the ground. You need the initial pot of money to actually kickstart yeah. the operations and start moving the needle with the idea itself. Yeah. And then how do you balance that while you're trying to build the business itself? Oftentimes, I mean, in, in, in most instances with social enterprises, um, a lot of these founders don't have access to that initial pot of money. And that's why a lot of social enterprises struggle to get off the ground. And this ends up being a disservice to the communities that depend on these businesses for survival for their products and services in many ways. Um, often social enterprises are working on, working on the front line to serve very important community needs. What do you think needs to change in this sector to better resource and equip these businesses? Because when you are stretched for resources, when you are stretched in terms of funding, you're you're either focusing all of your attention towards fundraising and getting access to those resources, or you're focused on building a business so that you can generate revenue. But how do you generate revenue when you don't have the initial infrastructure in place? So it's it's very difficult building a business, um, but even more so when you're doing something that is community centric. Mm. Are, do you have any ideas around what, you know, what this sector could do to better support social enterprises in, in the new economy? As I imagine, they will be a core part of how we rebuild businesses and how we rebuild our communities to build something that is something more beneficial and a lot more kinder in how we um, address our societal and environmental problems. And we need good infrastructure in place to make that happen. Okay. So building any kind of business, um, you know, unless you're going into the, the restaurant trade or, or, you know, anything like that, most businesses, their biggest cost is people. Um, and, you know, and I think people who who start businesses uh, make a, a significant sacrifice, uh, at least up front, and maybe that changes down the line, but um, make a significant sacrifice when it comes to uh, the amount of money that they are uh, earning. And I think one of the big challenges is how do I actually keep food on the table? Um, how do I, you know, build this business? Right and still maintain my life. <laughs> to, right. To and you it, said you were it. living on less than minimum wage. Yeah, I was. So caveat to that, the important caveat to that is that I, um, by virtue of my background, always knew that if things got really rough, I was, that I was going to be okay. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, what what to me is is important is uh finding ways in which um we can fund people to um you know 
just look after themselves and work on their businesses because ultimately mm-hmm. I believe in the, the power of, of people uh, and the capacity for people to drive change. And mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I think, you know, obviously if you're not making uh, any, any revenue at all, um, and, you know, I'm not sure I quite agree with, you know, uh, the amount of money you make is the amount of value that you give to society, right? But, um, yeah. you know, you, you right. do need to find a way to to kind of measure and, and capture that value in some way. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, initially, at least, having some way in which innovators in particular can be funded to uh, yep. go out and actually build these businesses. So if I were, if, if, if I were in, you know, Bayes or, or, um, or, or an organization, you know, a ministry um, of that sort of ilk, I think um, an innovator's stipend um, would to mm-hmm. me be one of the biggest uh, kind of things that, you know, you can go to the government and say, you know, here's my, here's my initial business idea. I need, you know, and everyone gets 12 months where you just spend time developing that business uh, and we'll provide you, you know, the, whatever it is that, you know, let's say average wage uh, or, you know, uh, that uh, average income for 12 months. Then I think that that is a massive step towards being able to build a business, particularly when more and more businesses are, you know, marginal unit cost things like software, where the main driver is is the cost of people. Um, so I think just being able to fund people to do that, and you know, you talk to any startup accelerator, and basically they fund, they give you enough money to be able to fund a team of one or two for a year or for six months. And I think that, you know, I, I'm a strong believer in mm-hmm. in in the, the role that government can have in innovation. Um, and I think that uh, having some sort of innovators grant or innovator stipend um, that allows people to go out and actually build new and innovative businesses that are high risk, that they don't need to kind of uh, worry about that. I think that's that to me is the is the way in which I would approach that. I love that. And. You're, you're completely right. To be able to foster innovation, we need to make sure the basic needs of people are met. And without access to funding and a stipend or resources, it's very difficult to create the right environment to make that happen. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm in full agreement with what you just shared. I'm, I'm interested to hear, I mean, you know, we are living through an economic crisis. We are living through a pandemic. And there are many people that are considering or exploring ways of building social enterprises that address some of the most emerging needs that are coming up at the moment. But of course, building a business during these times is incredibly challenging. And it's, you know, it's difficult to build a business as it is, as you've very clearly outlined and highlighted in today's conversation. Do you have any advice for aspiring entrepreneurs or aspiring social entrepreneurs that are uh, thinking of taking this pathway of building something meaningful for the economy? It's almost a, you know, it's kind of a litmus test um, in terms of you either kind of believe in your vision or you don't. Um, And I think that for me, what has been really important is the the vision of uh, the 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 kind of how can I put it the importance of of vision in keeping you going through those kind of difficult and dark times and I'm not sure if it's kind of advice or 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 what it is exactly but I think you know you, you you can kind of you you can feel it when and I, and I've seen people who've felt it and I've seen people who haven't that if this is something that you think is worth working on that you will kind of stick with it um but I think at the same time I think it's really important to have those moments 
and almost milestones where you can say, do you know what? This isn't actually working. And I've had, I've had two moments in, uh, in what, when I've been working on this, where I've thought, if this doesn't come off, I've had a, you know, I've had a, I've had an impact. Uh, I have made a change to people's lives. I have given it as good a shot as I can. And if this doesn't come off, then I'm kind of, I'm happy. And so I suppose what I think people should kind of maybe try and think about is what amount of impact would you be happy with if the whole thing failed? Uh, And kind of, you know, how football managers say, we're just taking it game by game. You know, we're not trying to think about the title or anything, just taking it game by game. And I think trying to, because, you know, the chances are that what I'm doing is going to fail. You know, I've, I've had some success so far, but the, 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 the chances are that what I'm doing is not going to work. There's going to be something that means that it doesn't work. And being okay with that, but also understanding or kind of being able to aim for a point at which you can kind of say, yeah, I actually, this was worth it. I, I spent the last year, let's say, doing this thing and I achieved that. But to go beyond that, actually, this isn't going to work. And so having those kind of milestones where you can say, even if this doesn't scale, even if this doesn't turn into something that, you know, everyone can use, setting kind of realistic goals for your impact and kind of building on those, I think is really important um, just for your own sanity (laughs) as much as anything else. Um, Yeah, so I think that that would be my, my one piece of advice. Thank you for that. That was really lovely. And I would just like to close with a final question. I imagine many of the reasons why you have continued to push through these difficult scenarios and you're still here today building open energy labs is because you felt this market was underserved and you were driven by a desire to build and create a better future for the people of Zambia, but also other countries within Africa. What do you think it will take to change mindsets of investors and key stakeholders to recognize that there is emerging markets that could utilize access to capital, could utilize access to networks, um, and by equipping them with the means to be able to tap into resources like those that you're creating that may be either through Open Energy Labs or through other businesses that come come about in this space. Um, and the potential that that holds for the global economy and in terms of future partnerships that come out come about between countries. Um, the benefit of supporting emerging markets is not just on a local level, it's really on an international level. I'm curious to hear whether you have any thoughts on how we can inspire those that have access to resources, have access to capital to consider redirecting those to markets like those that you're serving? Yeah, it's a a really interesting question and one that I've kind of been thinking about um, a lot. And, um, you know, for for me, it's quite uh, kind of uh, Africa specific. But I think that um, one of the kind of trends that I've kind of been seeing uh, particularly on kind of social media, places like Clubhouse and um, Twitter, um, is the role of the diaspora um, uh, within mm-hmm. within emerging markets. Um, and in mm-hmm. particular, I think um, you know we, we've seen a lot of kind of change come about through the through the Black Lives Matter um, movement uh, yep. and and you know and the protests that that happened uh, that happened last year. I think that we kind of need to take on some of that energy uh, and some of that drive and also think about what do, what do those lives, um, be they, you know, black people of color, whatever, what does kind of international solidarity look like? Who are the people um, who are in those communities um, who aren't in the global North? How can we 
um, support them and, and empower them? Um, and how can we kind of bring um, the, you know, global um, uh, modes and, and kind of um, methods of, 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 um, of oppression, how can we kind of highlight those? Uh, and how can we, um, you know, move forward together to, to alleviate and to, to kind of stop some of those? Uh, and I think that, you know, access to capital for, for innovative businesses is, is, a, is a key part of that. So I think it's about taking existing conversations, um, particularly around kind of race and ethnicity, um, and broadening the scope of those to include not just people who, who are within the global north, uh, and to kind of harness some of the change that we've seen, that when we do talk about those marginalized communities um, within the global north, that we can mobilize some of that change to also talk about the communities within the global south. That is such a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Samson. I really appreciated that. What are some ways our listeners can support the work that you're doing and learn more about Open Energy Labs? Sure. Um, so we, uh, you can check us out on our website, openenergylabs.co. Um, we're on LinkedIn. Um, if you search Open Energy Labs, we're on Facebook, Open Energy Labs. Um, our Instagram is not quite so active, but um, at Open Energy Labs on Instagram. And we're also on Twitter as well, at Open Energy Labs. So we tweet and share things semi-regularly, but also please feel free to get in touch um, if you have any ideas you know we're always willing to to talk to people and listen to ideas and uh and partnerships particularly if you're from the from the diaspora um uh um you know uh, the african diaspora in particular um looking to find ways in which we can kind of get involved um uh yeah so those are those are the kind of main ways in which we're we're kind of looking looking for support amazing thank you so much samson for joining me today and helping us re-envision business Fantastic. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's been a, an absolute pleasure. We'll be back on the first Wednesday of every month with a new episode. To ensure you don't miss out, please subscribe to Reinvision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you've enjoyed our episode, please leave us a five-star review so that others can learn about Reinvision Business. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle UpEffect for updates on the next episode. Until next month.